Tonight I'd like to talk about the interdependent relationship of all phenomena, of all conditioned reality, and in connection with this, of karma. The middle ring on that drawing, what Stephen also called conditioning activities, Looking at existence, our experience, we can, on one hand, investigate its nature, its impermanent nature, and its empty nature, meaning it's being empty of any kind of independent self-existence, whether it's in beings or in things. Looking at existence or experience, we can, on the other hand, investigate its functioning, the patterns or laws which govern reality. They are the laws of interdependent relationship, of cause and effect, and of karma, of action and its result. it's this second aspect I'd like to talk about, to look at tonight, the lawful functioning of life. But it's good to remember that both aspects, the interdependent existence and its empty nature, they're really the two sides of one and the same coin. There is no way two things that are disconnected, they're in no way separate. In fact, to truly understand no self or the emptiness of self is to be very clear about the connectedness of all things and being very clear about the effect which events and things have on each other including our own actions. So if we feel that we understand non-self, but at the same time have no sense of connectedness and responsibility, it means that there's still a piece missing. As Westerners, sometimes we have somewhat of a problem with cause and effect of our actions, or karma, because to some extent we can't directly see how they are related. So what I'll do is, on one hand, give you the Buddhist presentation, and then you just listen see what touches, what rings a bell. And if anything doesn't make sense, just leave it. And on the other hand, I'll try with illustrations and examples to give a sense of this dynamic, lawful process that's at work. Now, wishing to understand life and to be free of suffering, I feel that there is great meaning in understanding 
dependent arising of all things, and especially the laws governing our actions and their effects, their results. It's so important that once the Dalai Lama apparently said that if he had to choose between the understanding of the emptiness of all things and the understanding of dependent arising and the cause and effect and karma, he would choose dependent arising and cause and effect and karma. What is being said here is that life is a complex network of intrinsically connected events. Everything depends on a vast range of other things in its existence. Like the hot climate in the Caribbean Sea heats up the Gulf Stream that moves across the Atlantic and that influences the climate on the coasts of Norway, for example, which then again influences the kind of fish you find there, the kind of vegetation that grows, and the kind of people that live there. Or, as very often happens in my country, I don't know about here, but I assume it's pretty much the same, toxic byproducts of factories in one area, let's say in the mountain area, are buried in the earth and then after some years they reach the water, the groundwater levels below the earth and then they flow down into the rivers in the Rhine in Germany, we have 140,000 different chemicals by now. This one test showed. There, it's all deposited in the ocean. And then ends up in fish and other sea animals. And finally again, ends up on our dinner table. On the dinner tables, back up in the area where it first started, and everywhere else. This long, complex kind of networks of cause and effect. Or CFC pressurized gas in an aerosol can. It somehow it seems to be in relationship with the big hole in the Earth ozone layers. And that somehow again seems to be in a relationship with the increased number of skin diseases that can be found among humans. There are these connections, and there are connections very often that aren't at all obvious to the eye, but are nevertheless very real and have very strong effects. A stone or a rock thrown into water it creates waves and ripples. It creates waves at the moment or the time it drops and creates waves 
much later in time creates waves at the place it drops and waves further away in all the directions. So nothing really happens in a vacuum. Another example would be when 20 people create a space of silence and stillness, it has an effect, becomes quite tangible might not be so visible, but we can feel that. But suppose just one person among all those in silence would break the silence. The ripples would be quite obvious. And it would mean not only waves and ripples in that person's own mind, but also in the mind of the person pulled into the talking. But not only would it affect those two people, but many, maybe the whole group would be affected too, would feel the ripples. So the effect happens not only at that moment, in that place, but all over the place, and even much later. Every event in life is connected to many other events. Every action has an indefinite number of effects and results. And we can see, for example, in meditation, how the eye connects or meets with a sight, a form, a color, or the ear connects, contacts, meets with the sound. And then, with that contact, experience arises. And from there, a whole, reaction, a whole chain of reaction, a whole range of reactions can occur. We wanting and holding on, desiring more, or aversion and resistance, and even going out to destroy the thing or the situation. All that can come of that simple moment of contact. So here too, it's a life dynamic chain of cause and effect. A sutra illustrates this as the jewel net of Indra, where the light of a jewel is reflected in a whole network of jewels whose light again then is reflected from all those other jewels back into the original jewels. There's a story of one master who demonstrated that by constructing a palace of mirrors whereby when he lit the one candle in the center, the candle was reflected in every one of those thousands of mirrors, which in turn was reflected in each other mirror. So quite similarly, maybe not everything hinges on everything else, but there's nothing that does not depend on the vast range of other things. I'll talk some more about the dynamic 
pattern and interrelatedness of existence, or which is life, which is existence. But first I would like to define more exactly what is meant by karma. Karma really means or is action. It refers to our mental actions, thoughts, attitudes, to our verbal actions, our speech, our physical actions. Power, quality, and result of karma, of these actions, has mostly to do with the intention, the motivation, the kind of volition that's behind any action. So in a more precise sense, karma really is intention. Good old classic Buddhist example. Imagine a thief sticking a knife into a person's body, maybe stealing a person's money, running away, and that person dies. Imagine a surgeon sticking his or her surgeon's knife into a person out of compassion, trying to save that person's life through surgery. But the person dies. In both cases, similar action and the same outcome, the person dies. Yet, they're very different karmic results. Quite obvious because of the intention, because of the motivation behind the action. The thief acting out of greed and aggression be a very painful karmic result. The surgeon, in his case, acting out of compassion, wishing to help, a very different result. It's the intention that determines karmic results. So it's a very interesting place to pay attention to, to look at in our practice looking at every moment's experience, which is the result of our past, our past karma and conditioning, coming together with the conditions of this moment, and then seeing our relationship to it at every moment, or our reaction to it. How do we deal with it? How do we react to what's going on right now? and to that reaction and the intention and motivation that's behind that reaction, creating no karma, creating our future. One aspect that is important to understand is that karma is incorruptible. Every action will inevitably bring its results. Probably some of you have heard this. Ruth Dennison, 
Vipassana teacher here in the U.S. says, puts, she puts it quite funny, but right to the point. She says, karma means you can't get away with nothing, darling. Means unwholesome, negative, destructive action will lead to sorrow, pain, suffering, and disharmony. Wholesome, helpful, meaningful action inevitably leads to serenity, joy, harmony. The Buddha expressed this in a verse. It's from the Dhammapada collection of verses by the Buddha. If a person speaks or acts with an unwholesome mind, suffering follows that person just as the wheel of the cart follows the ox that draws the cart. If a person speaks or acts with a wholesome mind, joy follows that person just as her own shadow follows her. So it's quite straightforward. Sweet orange seeds will give sweet oranges and not sour lemons. Bitter neem seeds will give bitter neem fruit. And dogs will give birth to little puppy dogs. They're not going to give birth to little crocodiles or little birds or giraffes. There we think it's quite obvious, but it's that same lawfulness at work. A strict lawfulness within that cause and effect process. Now seeing this process of cause or intentional action and its result, experience, quite a bit further down the road, maybe next lifetime even, perhaps we might come up with the famous question, if there is no self, no substance, no entity, that passes from one life to another, from one form of existence to another, then how is karma possible? How is this chain of cause and effect possible? How can an action be linked then to the future? Perhaps the most helpful is to look at number of examples where we can see that very same process happening. It might be more useful than other explanations. Take a chestnut tree, or take a chestnut, one chestnut on a chestnut tree. It falls to the ground. That chestnut falling to the right place, getting water and sun on the earth, starts sprouting. Somehow, a little sprout comes up, a little bush, and a new chestnut tree starts growing. And after so many years, don't know how many, again, chestnuts will grow on that tree. And you have more chestnuts, maybe they fall down in the earth. 
nothing is left from that first chestnut. On that chestnut, maybe 25 years later or 50 years later. It's not that some piece of that chestnut went, went on to 50 years later. Nothing substantial went on from one to the next. And yet, the second clearly is the effect of the first. In strict, strictly in accordance with that lawful process, means again it will be the same kind of chestnut. Or another example, take a seal that's pressed into warm wax. The exact form of that seal will be found in that wax. And yet there is nothing that went over or that goes over really from the seal to the wax. Take the flame of one candle that passes over to the next and then from this to the next. It's not the same flame. The same flame has gone with the first candle. And yet it's not a totally different, disconnected flame. It's somehow the energy or the continuum of the flame, flame that passes over. Yet it's never the same flame. There's not something that went over to the next. In a similar fashion, one kind or one instant of karmic force or potency gives rise to the next instant, creates the next instant, until conditions are ready and we get its effect. It's the same lawful process at work, yet nothing, no thing that passes on from one to the next. Much like those big waves in the southern hemisphere, in the ocean where there's no, no uh, continents, apparently some of those waves can go all the, all the way around the globe completely. One and the same huge wave. And yet that wave during that whole journey, there's not one drop of water that goes with it. It's just that movement. that perpetuates, perpetuates itself through that whole distance. Nothing going with the wave except the motion, the momentum of the movement that goes on and on. Modern quantum physics has come up with some fascinating discoveries in this respect. In the Tao of Physics, Capra points out that the illusion of the existence of any material substance can be compared to the phenomena of a water wave in which the up and down movement of the water particles makes us believe that a piece of water moves on over the surface. It says, in a similar way, a subatomic particle, or what's called a particle, is really just the energy knot, which 
propagates through empty space like a water wave across the surface of a lake. But really there is no substance, or there is no one and the same substance that the particle consists of at all times. It's sort of the intensity that moves through a surface, or through a field, or through an empty space. So there too, movement takes place, events are happening, and yet no substantial entity that goes from one place to the next, the next. So our whole universe, in that sense, is a tightly interwoven network of events and movements with no clear boundaries, with no real gaps or separations, and with no independent entities or substances anywhere to be found. And any movement is inextricably connected to an unlimited number of other movements, and nothing happens in isolation. So in, in a way it's almost childish to believe that our actions, or any action, any movement, could be without consequences. It doesn't really make sense if we understand the interconnectedness of all things. doesn't make sense to behave as if they were taking place in a vacuum, independent of everything else within time and space. So we need to recognize quite urgently that it matters greatly what we do, how we act, what karma we create at any given moment. Because it influences and determines our own and others' future experience for a long way to go. The Buddha spoke of ten kinds of actions which are mainly responsible for causing painful, difficult results. And again, we can't directly check this out, but we can see and feel for ourselves what happens inside and around ourselves whenever we do perform these kinds of actions. And I feel that's actually quite relevant. We get quite the sense of their effects. The three kinds of physical action are mentioned. One is killing and harming beings. One is stealing or taking what doesn't belong to us, what has not been given to us. And it's causing harm through insensitivity in our intimate, our, our sexual relationships. And if you just imagine killing for a second, you can imagine fighting for life and death. We can imagine that. The enormity of aggressive energy it would take to kill someone. It, it must be so intense 
it must have all sorts of effects, not just on that person, but on the person who does it. And I remember as a kid, sort of standing on beetles, it's like I sort of had to somehow get all the strength together and just do it. And just even when I remember that feeling, it's so intense. It must have effects. And it can't be very positive. Three aspects of physical action. Four aspects of speech that said to lead to painful results. Is lying, being dishonest, saying what is not true. And I think it's quite obvious. If we want to be free, if we want to understand reality, we can't start by concealing it or changing it, fiddling around with it. It'll get us further away from understanding it. That's lying or being dishonest. Slander, saying negative things about others, perhaps saying things that are not even true. So harsh and abusive language is the third one. And interestingly enough, gossip is the fourth one. Perhaps it's not that heavy, but it can take up a lot of our time. So easy to get into it. So again, we can check them out for ourselves, see how they feel. And the more sensitive we are, the more clearly we see what their effect might be. The three of three actions of body or actions of speech, the three attitudes of mind that cause negative and painful results too. One is craving in the mind that decidedly coveting and wanting someone else's things. Ill will is decidedly intentionally harboring aversion, harboring hatred or anger against someone. And the third one, the interesting one, is what is called wrong view or incorrect view. And it refers to views with respect to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, which really means, in a way, the decidedly denying the possibility of inner freedom, of awakening, of enlightenment. Speaking of wrong view about the Buddha means really speaking about wrong views, about awakening, about the possibility of freedom. Denying the meaningfulness or even the possibility of a meaningful result of spiritual practice. That's what mistaken views about the Dharma could mean for us. Denying that it works. 
anasanga, that would mean denying that there are people and we need people who can assist us, who can guide us, who can point out directions and means that help us in our quest for understanding and freedom. And the second one is wrong view with respect to karma, to cause and effect, and it includes rebirth, which would mean decidedly dismissing the laws of connection between actions and their result. So again, that would mean not to care about what we do, how we act. So in one way, wrong view is the most important one because it's a question of being clear about all the rest. Just as there are these 10 unskillful actions, there are also 10 skillful actions, which is the abstaining from those unskillful ones. And it means a determined abstinence. So in that sense, when we were looking at those guidelines at the beginning of the retreat, to make a decision for oneself to follow those guidelines of not killing, of not taking what doesn't belong to us and so forth, in itself that decision is already a skillful, a powerful, positive action. Being decided not to want to be killing, harming, stealing, lying, and so forth. And then, of course, that's then not just when there's no opportunity anyway. It becomes very interesting when there is an opportunity. Been practicing in caves and places in hot countries, and suddenly, all kinds of invasions of little strange and weird things coming. So first carrying them out, and more coming, too many coming. What do you do? It becomes very interesting. Or when they get on your body, in your hair. And I don't even know if there's one solution to all the situations, but to really start to work with all those possibilities when they occur. To work with it when it looks like we might get some advantage of not being careful or some pleasure. These ten skillful actions of abstaining from the unskillful ones or what's called shila, or perhaps moral integrity, or integrity. And it's really the base or the foundation of inner growth. I don't think it's possible to truly open and develop and not caring in terms of those very basic attitudes towards life. But in a way, it's more than just abstaining from those 
negativities. It's rather a transformation. Transformation from not harming, not stealing, not lying, to caring and healing, to giving and serving, to honesty, to clarity and to understanding. The further deepening of inner skillfulness or wholesomeness that comes through developing love and compassion, practicing love and compassion, wishing happiness for other beings, wishing beings to be free of suffering, and acting, engaging oneself in activity that's motivated through that wish. Developing sympathetic joy, very powerful. Rejoicing in beings, in other beings' happiness. Rejoicing in other beings' virtues and qualities. Rejoicing in our own goodness, which sort of see, sounds foreign to us. Not something we're often told to do. Rejoicing in our own qualities. It seems that often it's even difficult to find them. I, I don't have any qualities. So, to look at that side, making it part of one's practice, rejoicing in any positive quality that we can see in ourselves or others. Quite a joyful practice, quite a happy practice. One Tibetan teacher who often made a point that it's perhaps the easiest and happiest and yet most powerful practice that we could do. We just remember and train ourselves to rejoice. There's great virtues or skillful karma in meditation making the right or appropriate effort. The effort to be mindful, to be aware, to investigate, to see clearly, to develop concentration and steadiness of mind, bringing about insight, wisdom, intelligence, understanding. Again, it's very powerful, positive action. Traditionally, in Buddhist texts and teachings, many examples have been giving, given showing which kind of action is giving which kind of result. And I'm not going to go through the list now. But basically, in some way, it seems that the result is always similar to the action which caused it. And as an example, it says that non-violence or non-harming will result in well-being, in good health. That greed and miserliness will result in poverty and in inability to enjoy things, while generosity will result in abundance for oneself, in having what we need, in having enough of what we need. And if you see the similarity 
you can almost feel it. As we practice generosity, there'll be abundance. As we practice non-violence and non-harming, maybe healing, there'll be well-being. From greed, from holding back, from wanting, there'll be poverty as a result. If we keep on practicing that attitude. Now we can say that this holds always true, looking at examples in this life. And we can check out whether it holds over long periods beyond this lifetime. But we can observe at least what happens in terms of developing or strengthening or getting into the habit of practicing certain mind states. You can see it as habit patterns or tendency that we keep on enforcing. And as we enforce them or practice them, they'll have more and more strength. Just as we reinforce and strengthen patterns of awareness now, or of openness, or of patience, as we sit and walk in the retreat. Similarly, taking frequently to violence, or to harming others, the mind will get rougher, tighter, and less and less balanced. It's most likely to develop away from well-being. Continuous greed and avarice would create an atmosphere of poverty even in that lifetime. And we can see people have a lot and somehow they seem to not have enough because of the habit of needing and wanting. While a mind that's more open, more and more generous, right then experiences inner contentment and abundance, even amidst external poverty. Somebody who has that kind of mind feels rich. I remember in Dharamsala, living in a little hut next to a few monks, and I had just about started to realize on what they were living. I think it was 60 rupees, maybe. What's that? Five dollars a month? And not exactly, it could be ten dollars a month, okay? And one of them coming home from the market with two bananas. And seeing me coming around the corner said, Oh, hello, want a banana? There was no hesitation, he had plenty. It's only a while later I realized he's probably able to buy about three a month. I just went, gave it away. So there's that sense of having plenty, even in poverty. Or with awareness, with seeing clearly. It's quite obvious. It's like if we bring a lamp into a room that's dark, it gets light and we can see. If the light is covered, it gets dark and obscure and we'll be blind. It's really that simple. So what the understanding of cause and effect and karma tells us is 
that our own future lies in our own hands right now. Not so much in the sense that we try to get and to achieve the best and the most we can, but much more by taking great care with everything. Everything we do, our thoughts, our attitudes, as much as our actions at every moment. It's that which will determine the future, our direction, the direction of our inner development. The Hindu teaching says that we need to let go of our black iron chains by pulling ourselves up by means of the golden chain. But that finally we need to drop both chains and be free. It seems to point out at, at the necessity of stopping to create unskillful karma and our suffering for ourselves. And it points to the importance of creating good karma and our serenity and peace for ourselves. And it also points at the fact that freedom does not lie within either of them, good or bad karma. Because it's not caused, it's not conditioned and caused by either one. It's uncaused. It's unconditioned. And yet it matters very much how we act. The Tibetan tradition gives a good illustration of this. As we dream, we're usually totally caught in that dream. And we go through a whole range of experience, from suffering to happiness. We can go from terror, nightmares, to bliss. But once we wake up, we know it's just been a dream. Nothing more. That moment we have to say, oh, right, it's just been a dream. Whether it was difficult or whether it was fun, it's just been a dream. But as long as we dream, as long as we're in that dream, we will have, we do have happy dreams, and we can have and we will have nightmares. That depends on the karma. And therefore that depends on us now. There's a lot more that can be said about karma. But instead, I'll just shortly review the main points we touched. Causes have an effect. Actions produce a result. So what we do, how we act, matters greatly. It's the intention the motivation behind the action, which counts, which determines the nature of the result. And basically, a cause or a, an action that is in harmony, in tune with reality, creates happiness. 
in a cause or action that's destructive and negative creates suffering. And though it's an insubstantial process, with no owner behind it all, results are bound to come. The law of karma is infallible. And of course there's no one who punishes or rewards. It's not a matter of good and evil, in a way. It's not even a moral question somehow. It rather says that we will simply experience the kind of energy or life quality which we're creating now. The inner tendency which we're strengthening now for better and worse, that's what we're going to experience. And this whole perspective gives to a life meaning and purpose and direction. And it also gives us responsibility. It's the present moment, the present action, and the present attitude now that we have to take care of. It's the mind of now that determines where we'll go and what we'll experience. It's us at every moment determining how our future experience will be. Thus our own life is in our own hands. I'd like to close by reading this by Duan Elgin. There is no one who can take our place. Each of us weaves a strand in the web of creation. There is no one who can weave that strand for us. What, what we have to contribute is both unique and irreplaceable. What we withhold from life is lost to life. The entire world depends on our individual choices. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.